How many of y'all have ever been handcuffed? Couple? We've got some stories now. Let me ask a different way. How many of you ever been uh, restrained or stuck in a place where you didn't want to be? A couple more. Maybe you were handcuffed and you were afraid to admit it. I've been handcuffed before. I've been in the back of a car. Uh, my friends and I decided it'd be fun to uh, shoot up a couple houses with paintballs. Anaheim Police Department thought it was not a good idea. And so they came and took our guns and threw me in the back of the car. It's a fun story. Anyways, nothing... Nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but there was a time in, in summer camp, I was in junior high. Junior high was awful. Uh, and, and I thought that this was my first time going to summer camp. My brothers were in this camp. My brother Scott, who's five years older than me, was a junior. And so the junior high and senior high summer camps went together. And I knew there was this thing called hazing that happened. And I thought that I would be free from that because... My brother is Scott, and he will protect me. Wrong. Uh, my brother was a part of this. They grabbed me. Uh, they lifted me two feet off the ground, and then they got the duct tape out. And they duct taped me to the tree, and then left. And here I am. I was little in, 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 at one point in my life. And so I'm, I'm duct taped to the tree, screaming and yelling, trying to break free, and nothing. They went down to whatever camp. If, if you ever see my brother, he probably will deny everything. But this happened to me. And so I'm there at Ponderosa Pines, stuck to a Ponderosa tree, trying to get out. And every time I tried to move, things just seemingly got tighter and tighter. I thought maybe if I could just get the rip started down here at the bottom, it would break free. No. After about 10 minutes, I just gave up. I just sat there like, if they're behind the other tree, they're laughing at me and I'm just giving them fodder, right? And so I just resigned that this is how I'm going to die. <laughs> I, I was now uh, bear bait. It was a good run, my 12 years, and now I'm just going to stick here on the side of the tree. I had, I had given up. And there's this thing that we do whenever you find yourself absolutely stuck, either when you're trapped on the side of a tree or maybe in the back of a car with handcuffs. There's some times where you, you fight it and you fight it, and then there comes a point where you just go, I can't. I'm stuck, and this, this is how it's going to be, where you resign to the fact that this is your life. Now you're pinned. You're stuck. You can't go anywhere. Either you will overcome it or you will succumb to it. Either something will happen and you'll master it, you'll Houdini your way out, or it will master you. And it's not always restraints that we put on ourselves to hold us down. Sometimes it's things in your heart that you feel that you're trapped against. There's places, there's patterns, there's, there's things that we each have. Every one of us has one of these things where we're fighting to overcome it. And there comes a point in your fight against it, whether it's an addiction, whether it's, it, it, it's, it's a pattern of sin or lust or anger or unforgiveness. There comes a point in your life where you're like, I'm tired of fighting this. This is just the way it's going to go and you resign to it. I will always be this 
way. You've decided that you're not going to master it. It's going to master you. There's a lot happening in the text that, we, that Bryn read. There's a good 18 verses with, worth of stuff, and it keeps going afterwards. There's a lot that the writers of Mark, Matthew, and Luke are trying to show us in this text. But what I want to see us to look at today as we look at the text is that there's a man who is stuck with a bunch of demons inside of him. In the previous section, we see that Jesus comes and he stands in the middle of the storms, the external influences of our lives, and he says, peace, be still, and he calms the storms. And now he's getting off the boat. The storms are calm. They are saved. The disciples think, this is it. This is the God who has everything figured out. They don't have to do anything now. And then they step on shore across the lake, and now they're faced with a demon-possessed man, and Jesus sets this man free. The storms on the outside, Jesus calms, and now the disciples are looking at what's happening with this man, and they're seeing that the storms on the inside are also calmed. Jesus does, some, uh, does three things that we need to look at today, I want us to look at. It's not enough for Jesus just to identify places where we're stuck, it's not enough for Jesus just to identify places where we are broken so that we can be aware of something, so that we can be enslaved by something. Jesus comes across the sea and sees us and wants to set us free, not just make us aware of things. And he does this in, in three phases. The first thing we see is that Jesus meets this man right in the middle of his brokenness. The second thing is that Jesus changes this man he was one way and then at the end of the story you'll see he's a completely different person and then at the end of it it's not enough that you're changed it's not enough that you've been met jesus sends this person so let's start with how jesus meets him in verse five we're going to switch uh, back and forth between luke and mark mark goes into a lot more detail uh, but later we're going to go to the luke's version in verse in chapter in verse five of the mark account when they went across the lake of the regions of the Gerasenes, Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit. Uh, some translations will say a man who was possessed. Uh, the message Eugene Peterson calls him a crazy man or a madman. Uh, the man was demon-possessed. He was an impure spirit, Mark says, from the tombs, and he met him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had been chained by hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. There's some interesting nuggets here if you really want to dig into the culture and what's happening. And we see this in verse 2. There's some, there's some uh, Old Testament laws that come into play here. Jesus, it was weird that he was standing in this place to summarize what's happening. He's near a graveyard. In Leviticus, in the law of how the Jews in that day would conduct themselves, in Leviticus 21.11, it says that they would not enter a place where there is a dead body. They must not make themselves unclean, even for his father or mother. You couldn't even go into a cemetery. Jesus was considered a rabbi, a good Jew, and now he's standing foot in a place where they can't go. Strike one. Then, you read in the, the first thing, 
don't go into graveyards. Jesus is near a graveyard. Then you keep going in the text. And then towards the end of the text, you hear about these delicious fresh bacon that's around. There's pigs. You'll get that in a minute. There's, there's pigs nearby. And for Jews, they would not go near pigs, it says in Leviticus 11, 7 through 8. And the pig, though it has a divided foot and it is delicious, does not chew its the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. So you have, they're in a cemetery, there's dead people, and in that day, they didn't go near pigs. Strike one, strike two. Then there's a man who is demon-possessed. So there are three things that when Jesus steps ashore in this land, they shouldn't really be there. Those are just the three obvious things that we could take in the text. If you go further, you find out that they're in this area called the Decapolis. Decapolis shows up three or four times through Scripture. It's very important whenever they start to say where they are in the text that you pay attention to geography. They're on the other side of the lake. In a region, the Decapolis, which just means there's ten cities. They're all Greek. They were heavily, heavily Hellenized. That's a fun pair of words to say. When, when Alexander came through, he took them all over and made them Greek areas. They started off, however, as Jewish territories. They originally were the territories of Reuben, Manasseh, and Gad. When, in Numbers 32, when Moses comes walking through, they get to the edge of the river. This is before Moses died. They get to the Jordan River and they're going to cross it. They're going to go into the promised land that they have been wandering around the desert for 40 years. They get right up to the finish line, and these three tribes say, we're good right here. We don't want to cross the river. We don't want to get into any more battles. We're fine. And Moses looks at them and goes, this is Brad's translation, this this isn't going to go very well for you if you do this. And Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben go, yeah, we're cool with it. And so they stay essentially out of God's promise. In the book of Hebrews, it refers to this, these tribes as the ones who failed to enter God's rest. And there's a warning there. It says, don't fail to enter the rest. They came right up to the finish line. And then they said, meh, all that work nothing. I ran four marathons once because I was dumb, and I, I was running them. And it's, it'd be like this. Stephen runs marathons. We're good with it. Uh, and it would be like running 26.199 miles and then saying, just going to sit down like this and never finishing the race. This is what those three tribes did. They never finished. They were stuck. They never entered the land. And what it shows, it's a typology for us, and the writer of Hebrews taps into it, and I think Luke, Mark, and Matthew are doing the same thing. They had an unwillingness to move in to what God had for them. They had an unwillingness to, to continue in their transformation. God had called them. God had brought them to this place, and they said, we're good right here. This is what's happening in that town. You have this man, they're far away. The history of this place is those who did not enter God's rest. And now you have a man who's crazy, demon-possessed, running through the tombs. In one account, he's naked. 
So he's the naked demoniac streaker running through everywhere. The people in the towns decided that they were going to shackle him, and he kept breaking out. I imagine they got to this place where there's like, this is just Frank. He's like that. There's nothing we can do about him. He's got a demon. We're just going to have to live with it. Do you see what they did? They had a problem. And they didn't, they were so stuck by it and confused by it that they didn't do anything to solve it. Kind of like me, duct taped to the side of the tree. I had grown accustomed to it and I didn't really think I can do anything else. They had convinced themselves that the shackles around his legs would never be able to hold him back. And then think of Frank. I'm sorry if your name is Frank. We can change it if that offends you. Think of him. You think he knew that there was a problem? Yes. But was he resigned to the fact that there's this thing going on inside of him? There's these storms that are within that are just raging out of control and it won't get any better. For him, think of him in this place. The tombs are the only place where he can have silence. Driven out there to isolation and fear. He can't be around his family anymore. This was just how life was going to be for him. So he made himself comfortable in the brokenness. Making himself comfortable in the brokenness. There's something about accepting brokenness, isn't there? There's something about saying there's no use in me fighting this anymore. There's no use in me resisting. Because when you get to that place, you've given up. I'm always going to be this way. I'm going to normalize this. I'm going to desensitize myself. I'm going to numb out. This is how life was. This is how life was for this man. This is how life was for this town. They're never, ever going to change. And perhaps that's how you feel your life is. There's things going on and you're like, this, this is a forever struggle and either I can fight it and exhaust myself or I can just live into it and accept and normalize this broken area of my life and allow God never to come in and meet me in that place. But here comes Jesus. He steps across there. He had just finished the, red, the crossing of the sea. He just calmed it. He comes into this land and he steps foot into the Gentile land in places where they never expect him to be. And then he, he, he sails over there. He steps ashore. And it's almost as, this, as if this man is shocked to even see Jesus in this place. In those places where you've normalized brokenness, sometimes it's extremely shocking to hear Jesus go, I want to fix even that place. It's easy for us to say, no, 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 fix these places. This broken spot over here, I'm good with it. I'm comfortable with it. In fact, if you fix it, it's going to be weird because then I've got to get used to a new normal. They were shocked to see Jesus that day. Never expected to see him come shore. And it's almost that they're shocked to meet him. They're at the furthest point of his life. Jesus walks in and he meets him there, just like for us. When we're at our furthest place, Jesus walks in and says, I'm going to meet you in this place, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your rage, in the middle of your lust, in the middle of your fill in the blank, in the middle of your doubt. Nothing bothers me. I'm going to walk across. I'm going to be in a place where you wouldn't expect me, and I'm going to meet you in here, in that place. Jesus meets him 
Jesus knows that this isn't the way that this man was designed to live. You were not meant to live broken lives. Jesus desired to come and calm the storms that were raging with, within, inside of him. His desire is to encounter each and every one of us, to meet us, but meeting us is not just enough. He wants to meet us, but then he wants to call you to a different kind of life. After Jesus meets him, Jesus goes one step further and he changes him. Look in verse 28 in Luke chapter 8. We're going to switch over to Luke here real quick. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Can you imagine being the disciples here? You, you just saw Jesus calm a storm. He was sleeping. Now he's calmed, and you're looking at him like, what is going on? And then you see this crazy demon-possessed man come running out, and they're saying, Son of the Most High God, what are you doing? If I'm Peter, I'm going... What the heck have I gotten myself into? I'm by pigs, I'm in a cemetery, there's a crazy man, and he's calling this man God. Ah, what am I doing here? He continues, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. Jesus looks down in verse 30, What is your name? He said, Legion, he replied. Because many demons had gone into him and begged and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. Now the writer of Luke here and Mark and Matthew are doing something. Remember, Luke is writing to a highly educated audience trying to say who Jesus was. And Luke is tying, last week we talked about how Luke tied Jesus to Moses splitting the Red Sea, calming the storms, and providing a way out when it looked like certain death. He's continuing with this theme. He's painting God and Jesus and Moses as the one who calms all of the storms, who has the power to lead out of the places that are, bond, are holding you bondage. And he continues in the text, A large herd of pigs were feeding on the hillside. The demons begged, Let us go into the pigs. And he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank of the lake, and they were drowned. So Luke is painting a picture here of Jesus and Moses, and he's being careful to not mix it up too much, but it's, it's one of those things where if you look at the book of Exodus, and you look at some of the Gospels, and you go, this is the same type of thing. God, in Exodus chapter 3, meets the people of Israel in a place where they were being held in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt for 430 some odd years, making brick after brick after brick. And then in Exodus chapter 3, one of my favorite parts of Scripture, God meets Moses at the burning bush. And he says to them, Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Now, it would have been just enough for God to stop there. I've seen, I know about them, and I'm concerned. That's just what deities do, right? God doesn't get in, involved. No, 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 no. But our God is different. Look what it says in Exodus 3, 8. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
It's not enough just for God to meet the people of Israel. There's more to it. God calls them out and says, I, I don't just want to know about your brokenness. I just don't want to know about how you're enslaved to this thing. I want to set you free from that. Knowledge of something is cool, but being set free from what's binding you is even better. And that's what Jesus is doing here to this man. He says, I know where you are. You're stuck. You're being held enslaved to this. I'm going to set you free. Then, to tie even more to the, the story of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, last week we read about how God split the sea. There's an ending to this, and many of you know it. The Egyptians pursued them across the sea. All of Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen followed them in. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed their wheels of their chariots and made it difficult with driving. The Egyptians say, let's get away from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, so the waters may flow back over the Egyptian chariots and the horsemen. Moses did so. He stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak they went back into place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites in the sea and no one had survived and the Israelites walked through on dry ground. Jesus takes what has been binding this man, Satan himself, demons, a legion of them, takes them out, puts them in a place and then drowns them into the sea. Do you see the parallels between what's happened in Exodus and what's happened in Luke. What's binding you, what's holding you back, what's shackling you down, what's keeping you duct taped to the side of the tree is now gone and it is in the bottom of the sea. Jesus changed this man that day. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing is saying there is a new kind of Exodus happening. All of us are enslaved to something. All of us are in bondage to something. We might not have been in bondage to it for 430 years. Some of you are close. But you're stuck in this place and you can't get free. I was stuck in a place for, of pornography for like 13 years or something like that. Couldn't get free. Bondage. I'm free. He takes what's binding you, what's holding you captive and enslaved, and says, what I will do to that is the same thing I did to the Egyptians. It's the same thing I'm going to do to this demons. I'm going to put it in something, and I'm going to drown it in the ocean. I'm going to send evil back where it came from. This is what Jesus is doing to this man. The places where you are enslaved, the places that are holding you back, you don't need to be enslaved to them anymore. Jesus comes, he meets him in the middle of the brokenness and then says, it's not enough to meet you, I'm going to change you. And then it's not enough just to change you, it's not enough just to call you and set you free, I'm going to give you a new mission. I'm going to give you a new purpose in life. Because as you would imagine, this man, 
was pretty well known in his community. They knew who he was, right? It's the crazy guy. It's Frank. He's just out there. Now Frank's been set free. The pigs, this source of income, are drowned, and Frank's in his right mind. So what do they do? Well, it, it picks up again in verse 35. When they came to see Jesus, they found Frank, the man from whom the demons have gone out, sitting at the feet, dressed. I'm really glad someone gave him clothes. In his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. What happened was so shocking to them. What happened was this man went from a broken state to a place where he was healed, and it's almost impossible for them to believe. Pigs running into the sea is impossible to believe. Frank is clothed, he's in his right mind, and now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Just don't believe stuff like that. It's hard for us, it's hard for me sometimes to see how God has changed people's lives in such drastic ways. And you look at it and you say, how did you get from here to here? And there's only one explanation. It had to have been God moving. But notice this. Nobody came and tended to this man. Nobody came to him and said, good to have you back. No one came and offered him a meal. It says he was dressed Could have got that from the disciples. There's a lot of holes missing in this story. It's easy to assume what had happened. But no one, they came in, they saw him, and what did they do? They're afraid. They're looking at him a bit funny. This isn't what they're used to. The brokenness that they've grown accustomed to is now gone. Now they have to deal with maybe some of the brokenness that's inside of them. It's it's the coffee shop principle. If you, how many of you work in coffee shops every once in a while? When you sit down in a coffee shop, you can look around and go, ah, there's the weird guy. Every coffee shop has a weird guy. Problem, when you look around and you don't see the weird guy, you're the weird guy. So the, the, so the people in this town and the garrisons and the Decapolis are used to having... Frank over there in the corner doing his thing. He's the one. They can always point to go, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I'm not that broken. But now he's cured. He's had an encounter with Christ. Christ has met him. Christ has changed him. And now they're looking at their lives and going, now I'm the broken one. I don't have an excuse anymore. We all are confronted with our brokenness. And we can either react in two ways. We can react like these people did in fear. And we see what they did later in the text. They asked Jesus to leave. They say, go away. We don't want you here anymore. We can reject what Jesus has done. And then stop, the, stop him from curing the brokenness. Or we can be like Frank here. And sit at the feet of Jesus. And follow him. Frank wanted to go on. I'm calling him Frank. The man wanted to move on. He asked Jesus questions. There are three questions in this text of Jesus. Two are asked by the demons to have mercy on us. Jesus says yes. Throw us into the pigs. Jesus says yes. The last question comes from the demon-possessed man. He's faced with a dilemma. He has to go back and live in town now. 
He has to come face to face with now some responsibility. He has to go be the person that God has created him to be. He has to live in to the wholeness. He has to, he has to maybe mend some relationship. There's a lot of work for him to do. And it could be pretty daunting. But he's sitting there and he says, Jesus, let me come with you. Jesus' answer is harsh. Jesus essentially tells him no. And he says, go home. Go home. In the text, the man from whom the demons begged Jesus, and Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell, God, tell them how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done, done for him. Jesus, instead of taking this man with him, takes him and puts him on mission. The Greek word in the Greek, the last words that we see into this is the man, Jesus looked at the man and said, go home. And with that, the man goes off and tells everything, tells everybody everything that Jesus had done. There's no formula that Jesus gives him. He doesn't say, and here are the four spiritual laws in which you must tell them and how you must tell people about me. Jesus just simply says, tell them how you were chained, how you were broken, and now how you are free. Have them realize what you have discovered. Tell them that once you were this way, and now you have encountered Christ, and you're a different way. The story is intriguing, but the one thing that stands out most is we have to make up a name for this guy. There's no name for him, and I like it that way. Because when you read the text that there's no name for him, you can put your name in that spot. And you can say, that's me. I was once this way, resigned to my brokenness. And Jesus has made me this way. He has made me whole again. And we can go down the line and say, here is where I'm being set free from. Set free from the grips of Pornography set free from the grips of anger and rage, set free from the grips of lust, maybe cheating, set free from the grips of fill in the blank where you have been set free from. I was once held captive by these shackles. Maybe you have scars. But now I'm being set free and God is bringing the new life. Notice that Jesus doesn't say you will always be broken. He says your brokenness, essentially, he says brokenness is a part of your story. It's a part of where you've been, but it's not who you are. We like to define ourselves by where we're broken. We like to define ourselves by our dysfunction. And then we accept it and say, this is how I'll always be. Jesus says, no. It's part of you. It's part of your past. But it's not you. The brokenness, the, de- the demons, the, the, the shackles were a part of his past. But they weren't his future. Jesus sets him free. There's no dysfunction or destruction that's beyond his reach. We, are, we all need to be met, to be changed. And then our transformation becomes the best witness we have to the neighborhoods and the people around us. The Decapolis, where they're sitting, is mentioned 
three or four times more in the Scripture. There's a part in Mark 7 where Jesus spits and He puts His fingers and ears and cures blindness by rubbing mud on the eyes. There's another part in Luke, but then there's another section in John 6. It's later chronologically than what this was happened. Jesus feeds 4,000 people in the Decapolis. It's different from the feeding of the 5,000. It's in a different place. 4,000 people, and some of the scholars and the historians think that those people knew about Jesus, not because reputation, not because word traveled fast, but because of this man. Essentially, he's the first sent missionary. He's the first sent evangelist. He goes into the towns and says, look what Jesus has done. Remember me? I'm the crazy guy from the tombs. Look it. He's made me well. He's met me. He's changed me. And he sent me to tell you about it. An encounter with Jesus will change your life. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and remain the same way. A true encounter with Jesus will make you whole again. And so today when we partake in communion, it's, it's a picture of, the, of what Christ has done and the length to which he has gone to make you whole again. Not to make you comfortable with being broken, but to make you desire wholeness of his grace, his forgiveness and love, and then to send you on mission. We take communion as a picture of that, a picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Today, when I invite you forward for communion, you can abstain, that's totally fine. Or you can be a part of it, totally fine. No judgment either way. But before you come, I ask that you do some business with God. Maybe there's some broken places in your life that you've just gotten way too used to. You're saying, this is just the way it's going to be. I'm never going to overcome this. Today, I have this suspicion that Jesus wants to do some business in those places. He wants to meet you in the place of your heart that's far away and the place that you're hoping Jesus never sets foot in. And he's standing at the door saying, I want you to be whole again. I want to make this right. So today, before we come for communion, before you come to take part in this, ask God where that place is. And then when you come, and you take the body, which represents his. You take the bread, which represents his body, and you dip it in the cup, which represents his blood. Your prayer is this: Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. I pray you make me whole. Let's pray. And as I'm praying, if the communion servers could come forward, if you require gluten-free, I'll be standing here in the middle. Father, we thank you that you just don't meet us and leave us and walk away. But Father, you meet us, you change us, and then we walk away as your ambassadors. You send us. You give us a new identity, you call us into a new family, and you give us a mission.